dreams, God's gender, and the vacuum of space. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Ask Science Mike! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I recently had the chance to sit down with uh, Matt Carter of the Break It Down podcast and talk about music and the brain and interstellar travel and just lots of really nerdy stuff that you guys would be into. So I have a link to that on AskScienceBike.com if you'd like to check it out. Otherwise, let's answer some questions and get it started. Hi Science Mike, I'm Jess and I'm from Perth, Western Australia. Um, I don't really understand the concept of a vacuum, so a space vacuum, not just a vacuum that you kind of walk around the house with. Um, so in space, how can there just be nothing? I don't understand that concept at all. Um, it stumps me all the time when I think about astronauts having to wear pressurised suits so that can, they can be protected from nothing essentially. Um, So basically my question, hypothetically, if I was an astronaut and I was to take off my headgear and um, expose my head to the nothing vacuum, uh, if I was to open my mouth and swallow some of the vacuum or what I kind of perceive to just be air, what would happen? Um, Would my insides be sucked from the inside out because of the pressure or is it simply just like swallowing some air? Um, Thanks for everything that you've done in this wonderful show. I'm looking forward to your answer. Thank you. It's interesting you mention a vacuum as in a noun on the surface of the earth in relation to the vacuum of space, which is another noun but not an object. Um, And interestingly enough, a vacuum, the object in your house, uses a verb, vacuum, (laughs) to create a vacuum. It's really wild. English is weird. Uh, So basically, the vacuum of space is nothing like the atmosphere on Earth. You can't see the air, not really, not at short distances, although over long distances during the day, you certainly see uh, our air's tendency to scatter blue light. That's why the sky looks blue, even though it is, in fact, colorless. But you can't see air, but you can experience the ramifications of air. You can feel a breeze. You can see it scatter light. You see those things. Uh, The vacuum of space is different. It is a nearly perfect vacuum. It's space without anything in it, no gas pressure at all. You might have a stray atom or molecule every now and then, but basically in proper space, there's no atmosphere. There's no air. Now, when you have such a perfect vacuum, weird things happen. Little virtual particles and antiparticles can appear out of nowhere exist for a second, and then collide with each other and annihilate. Um, so the vacuum of space is not perfectly empty, but it's close. Uh, that being said, you know, is a vacuum nothing? That's more of a philosophical question because a vacuum is something. It's a vacuum. It's an absence of matter. But, for example, the vacuum uh, in our solar system is full of uh, electromagnetic radiation from the sun and even small particles from the solar wind and likely pulsing with dark matter, for example. So uh, not all that empty, just effectively empty from the human 
reference frame. Uh, now, if you were to take off your helmet uh, in space from your spacesuit, that would be a really terrible idea. Um, it's a really common intuitive thing for people to imagine things like gulping the vacuum of space or putting it into a jar. But that's exactly the opposite of what would happen. <laughs> uh, you exist in, in, a, in a state of pressurization. The, the gases and fluids inside your body are in a state of equilibrium with the atmospheric pressure outside of your body. And so if you were to take off your helmet in a spacesuit, the first thing that would happen is all of the atmosphere, all of the pressure in that spacesuit would quickly fly out. It would actually propel you the opposite direction of where your helmet came off because you would be ejecting matter into space, and that's how propulsion works. So you'd get a little bit of thrust out of that, and that would be the end of good things that happened. If you were holding your breath, your uh, lungs... All the air sacs in your lungs would rupture almost immediately as they overpressurized. Uh, if you were smart and, and blew absolutely all the air out of your lungs that you could, you might survive in space a little longer with a little less damage, but not much. You see, basically, your body's a balloon. Your skin's a flexible membrane. And if, if you take a balloon on, on the surface of the earth and you let it go and you let it fly higher and higher into the air, it starts to swell because there's more pressure in the balloon than outside the balloon. And your human body would do the same thing. You would immediately begin to swell a lot. And, and some people assume, in fact, that in terms of surface area, you would you'd balloon out to about twice your normal size. That would be a bad scene. Uh, the other thing that would happen is our atmosphere does a great job of filtering out uh, the harmful parts of sunlight. The Earth's magnetosphere helps us as well. And you would find that in moments, uh, any part of your body exposed to the sun would have uh, severe burns. It would only take a moment of looking toward the sun to do permanent and irreparable damage to your eyes. Uh, you would slowly suffocate because there would be no gases uh, for you to breathe. And probably uh, worst of all is, is you'd get something similar to the bends because you'd have these bubbles form in your bloodstream. Your blood would not boil, as many websites will tell you. That's not scientifically accurate. But you would get bubbles of, of, of gas uh, in your blood vessels, and that would cause the bends and decompression sickness. Uh, also, kind of rough, you'd have a lot of trouble maintaining any blood pressure whatsoever, because as your body stretched out, uh, your blood vessels would also correspondingly get larger, and there would not be enough volume of blood for your heart to maintain blood pressure. And of course, you'd be directly exposed to the sun's worst radiation. And even if you survived, you'd have horrible cell damage and DNA damage, depending on how long uh, you were exposed. And uh, even after you recovered from the side effects of uh, the swelling and uh, you know, possible damage to your lungs, you'd still have DNA damage and your risk of developing cancers in life would be dramatically elevated. Space is not a hospitable environment for human beings. We are uniquely suited to the surface of one surface in the entire solar system. As far as we can tell, so far in the entire universe, we are earthlings. So the vacuum of space isn't nothing. It's, it's an absence of 
gas, and atmosphere. Although it does have energy, it does have quantum effects, and probably even has a significant amount of dark matter. That being said, it's useless to you and nothing you could capture or gulp or interact with. It would simply slowly take everything from you. First your gases, and then very slowly your thermal energy. My advice is to keep your helmet on. Our next question comes from the email inbox, and it reads, How do dreams and nightmares work? What are they? Why do they happen? Do they serve any purpose other than to confuse us when we wake up? Well, interestingly enough, we understand more about dreams today than we ever have in human history. Because for the first time in the life of this species, we can actually watch brains in action using physics. There are several different technologies today that let us look at the activity in a human brain while the person is still alive. And given the immense complexity around human brains, that's helpful. Now, admittedly, the resolution of our instruments today is very limited. I often tell people in terms of brain science, we have a a similar technology level as Galileo when he first started to look at the planets through a telescope. But it's still new insight. It's still new information. Uh, I suspect some of it will be clarified or even found wrong in time. But some of the old ideas we have about dreams face uh, some pretty serious scrutiny in the light of modern brain science. The first thing you'd have to understand about a dreaming brain is it's a fundamentally different state than a wakeful conscious brain. Uh, When you're awake, uh, your neocortex, the outermost part of the brain, is generally running the show even in times of crisis your analytical facilities are, are taking note, checking facts, and uh, in general, exercising your agency. When you're asleep, your prefrontal cortex is, is pretty much offline, as well as your orbitofrontal cortex, which is you know, kind of the part of your brain that assesses risk and also checks the facts about reality, measures what your senses are saying, and tests them against a rubric of what you understand to be reasonable about the world. Likewise, way back in the visual cortex, uh, the parts of your your visual cortex that analyze visual imagery uh, are active while the the other parts that actually um, deal with signals from the eye are off. So uh, you are analyzing something visual. It's just not coming from your eyes. And this actually explains dreams pretty well. Uh, As you sleep, your brain has these routines that help you uh, strengthen memories that are important, disregard memories that are less important, and even clear out waste materials and toxins from your neurochemistry. And you can certainly imagine that things that you think about or are worried about or afraid of or want very badly end up showing up with greater strength in dream states. But without your brain's executive function, trying to create a cohesive narrative as it happens. Now, your amygdala and other parts of the brain associated with very strong emotions, and especially fear, are very active during sleep. And so, dreams typically have an unreal quality, as well as an intensely emotional quality, simply based on the parts of the brain that are active during sleep. So, dreams absolutely serve a purpose. They're part of our brain's housekeeping routine. 
Uh, it's kind of like watching someone clean your house. They might pick up things that you don't usually pick up uh, in order to dust them. They might go into areas that you don't usually go in uh, to make sure that things are tidy. The experience of a house being cleaned is different than the experience of a house being lived in. So the things you care about most, the things you think about most, tend to show up in your dreams, especially things that you're afraid of. And some of the sensations we associate with dreams are actually side effects of the ways that our body adapts to sleep. Many people uh, report feeling paralyzed in dreams where they can't move. I've even had dreams where I'm laying on the side of a roadway and I can't I can't move as traffic whizzes by my head. And that's a signal from the lower brain to the higher brain that for some reason it's aware that it can't move right now, which is true. You can't move while you sleep. Now, this to me calls into question some of the symbolic imagery we associate with dreams where different objects are always associated with different ideas in psychology. I don't know that there's much significance to that, but it doesn't mean dreams aren't meaningful. They let us know on some level the things our brain is spending time on, spending energy on, and connections, neurological connections and memory that the brain is trying to maintain. Uh, And because of that, you may figure out uh, something about your relationships, something about your goals, desires, and fears as you sleep and your brain does basic housekeeping. Another question from the email box reads, Hey, Science Mike, I've noticed that you seem to use exclusively male pronouns when referring to God. Is this an intentional thing or more of an old habit left over from your Baptist days? It's my understanding that most denominations of Christianities would tend to agree that God, the Creator, has no physical manifestation or body. It's only more conservative groups that hold to a strict usage of male pronouns for various reasons— traditions, diminished views of women, etc., and more liberal groups seem to use mostly a gender-neutral way, such as God's self, rather than himself or herself, God instead of he or she. From my own readings of the Bible, I've found some definite feminine vibes when used to describe God, such as a mother bear, and I personally have no problem whatsoever referring to God as she, her, and mother, as well as he, him, and father. I would be interested to know your view on the language we use to describe, and it's important to our faith lives, specifically concerning gender pronouns or terms. Thanks, Carly. Carly, thank you for your question. It's one I get a lot, and uh, I shouldn't be surprised. I do tend to say he a lot related to God. Uh, That is absolutely a habit I picked up in uh, 30 years in the Southern Baptist Convention, and it's one that uh, is relatively hard to shake off. Sometime last year with the liturgists, we released uh, a liturgy called God Our Mother, and the point of that um, work was to introduce people to apophatic theology, apophatic meditation, and the limitations we put on God through language. I certainly don't think God is male. I don't think God is female either. But as a writer, I have to be honest, non-gender reflective pronouns, they don't read as well. And so I tend to use he or she to describe God simply because it sounds good to my ear. In an ideal world, I'd like to balance those about 50-50, 
but I end up balancing them more like 95-5. Now, I'll be honest. My work, a huge portion of it, is devoted to helping people who are going through some form of existential crisis with God, and overwhelmingly, these folks come from conservative religious traditions. Overwhelmingly. And I've found that when I refer to God as she, it often shuts down a conversation before it can begin because my conception of God is simply too scary when I embrace a feminine pronoun. So, when I'm addressing conservatives, my use of the pronoun he is intentional and uh, definitive. I would rather someone come along for the conversation uh, than force an issue people aren't ready to contemplate or encounter. Uh, I would say that it is probably statistically wildly more common for people to think of God and masculine imagery in America today uh, simply based on the far greater footprint of conservative theology in America than progressive or liberal theology Uh, But I'm certainly comfortable with either. And I do give a lot of thought to the potential discomfort I may cause people by using male pronouns for God so often. Uh, It's, I got to be honest, you know, language is tough. I try to speak intentionally. And yet, very, very often, the years of neurolinguistic programming and conditioning I've encountered uh, are just immediately apparent in my speech. I am more likely to say Iran than Iran. I'm more likely to say Arab than Arab. And I'm more likely to say he for God instead of she, even though the way I think about the world identifies more closely with the later pronunciations and images that I just use, Iran, Arab, and she. But it requires an intense amount of concentration for me to use those words. And I think in general today, we're in a state where we are necessarily questioning the way we refer to things, looking at the merit of ideas, and I think that's a beautiful process. But I also think we are too quick to dismiss people who are working against a headwind of a lifetime of linguistic programming, and we should in all times offer people grace, especially when people are attempting to move forward and grow in life and do everything that they can to create a more peaceful society and eliminate human suffering and uh, universally express the love of God. Uh, It's a great question. I would encourage you, if you haven't heard it before, to check out God Our Mother by the Liturgists. That's probably my favorite work that we've done. And um, I'll make a good shot at referring to God My Mother in future episodes. Thanks. Hi, Science Mike. I wish more people would experience a revelation of God the way you did on the beach. Without some kind of experience like that, it seems many people won't come to the conclusion that there is a good God who cares about them, a belief with proven benefits. I believe Christianity is meant to teach and demonstrate this, but, as in your case, receiving an indoctrination of this sort often does not sustain the belief. More than a decade ago, I had my own somewhat mystical experience, which changed my life. Well, at least, at the very least, it made me much more gracious with other people. 
the experience involved being completely undone by a kind of revelation of a Father God's complete affection, acceptance, and approval of me. However, this did occur in the context of my deep faith, which since then has been partially deconstructed, especially while I'm watching my adult children struggling with whether there really is a God. Even though, of course, in my mind, I thought God had been demonstrated reasonably well to them. I guess my question is, why do you think you got the benefit of a mystical experience while so many don't? Do you think it has much to do with your open-seeking nature? Or uh, maybe God knew that you would be really helpful to many others, kind of like the Apostle Paul. Anyway, I'd appreciate your thoughts on this, whether the neurology of mystical experiences can predict who will experience them, or even why God would choose to reveal himself that way to some people sometimes. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate all you do. Keep it up. Scientists have been on a quest to understand why people understand and experience God so clearly and so directly, while others don't. Uh, Even though religion and spirituality is a very common system on planet Earth, all cultures include some religious and spiritual element, and belief in the afterlife and even belief in God is remarkably common in human societies, not everyone has those moments where God seems real and present to them. Some interesting research I've seen is, uh, well, first of all, Tanya Lerman did some research where she evaluated people using something called the psychological absorption test, and that generates a scale answer. And she found that people who scored higher on this test, which was designed to uh, identify a predisposition towards a person's ability to be hypnotized, uh, actually did reflect an increased propensity to directly experience God when that person prayed regularly or did other uh, frequent rigorous spiritual disciplines. Other researchers have looked to the genetic template of humanity and One scientist even claims to have found something called a God gene, although that name is a bit of an overplayed idea. There's no one gene that uh, is responsible for human religious recognition and response. There is a variable propensity based on a genetic template for different people to produce different amounts of particular neurotransmitters that are associated with viewing the world in a more mystical way. Way I heard one scientist say that to have a very high expression of the, quote, God gene, unquote, is basically to walk around on constantly a low-level dose of psychotropic drugs. So, these different researches have taught me that, number one, different people have a different natural propensity to experience what we call God, and number two, that the activities we do increase or decrease that propensity. And so you could imagine, uh, we don't all have the same genetic potential to be a runner, but if you have a naturally very fast runner who never exercises and who never practices running, race against someone who is less genetically gifted but works very hard at training to run, likely that second person is going to win the race unless the difference in the genetic potential is so vast that it can't be overcome. It seems somehow humanity is wired that way. 
we have differing genetic predispositions towards mystical experiences and religious belief that are reinforced or not by what we do. When people tell me they long for their own moment on the beach, I do offer them a few science-based suggestions on ways they could be more open to the experience. One, of course, is having an open frame of mind, having a seeking disposition, praying or meditating for at least 30 minutes a day, six days per week, and immersing themselves in some form of spiritual community to reinforce belief in God or the supernatural through social identity. All of those are things that will help. Now, that said, all I'm talking about is statistical propensities based on science. If you change your lens for a moment and instead look at a God who uh, we're assuming is active and intervening in reality in some way and made a choice to reveal you know, this divine light to me, I have no idea why I was chosen. I don't have the foggiest notion. I get this question almost every time I speak somewhere. People submit it to the show all the time. And I'm always afraid to answer this question because other than describing the science and the propensities, I don't have any answer. I don't know <laughs> what impact I might have. Um, I know I needed that moment. I know it was beautiful. And I know it changed my life. But my friend Rob Bell says that questions of blessing are just as difficult as questions of suffering. And as I've, I've thought about that idea, there are two sides of the same coin. In one case, you ask, why did I receive when another did not, in the case of blessing? And then in a question of suffering, you say, why did they receive when I did not? Only this time they received something negative. I don't have answers to those questions, and I'm not sure that anybody does. So the point of my work is not to definitively explain God or definitively explain even how I was able to encounter God, but merely to share that I did so that anyone interested, anyone seeking, anyone searching, and anyone hoping may find some peace and comfort, some reflection of that beautiful moment of light that I experienced on the shore of the Pacific Ocean that night. The more I think about it, the more I'm not sure that why did it happen is even the best question for me. I think a better question is what am I going to do with that moment? And I've been compelled, I've been pushed forward by a need to share that experience so that other people could find some measure of comfort who are looking for it, that maybe the why doesn't matter. Maybe all that matters is the what, the what do we do when God reaches down and touches us on the forehead. And I hope, I hope most of us that have had these sort of experiences turn around and try to reflect on and honor that moment by loving others well. Well, there we go. That's another episode of Ask Science Mike. Thanks for another week of great questions. Thanks for another week of downloading the show. Uh, I'd love to see you in person. I updated my events page today. 
at mikemccarg.com slash events. Uh, with all the stuff I've got on the calendar, at least most of it, I added details to events that were just placeholders before. Uh, for those of you that sent me emails and tweets uh, asking for more information or asking for missing events, thanks for the reminder. I do uh, forget <laughs> some of the basic mechanics of this stuff sometimes. So uh, I do have some things coming up. August 21st, I'll be in Orlando for the Relevant Podcast live event celebrating the 10th anniversary of that program. Then in September, I'll be in New York at Forefront Church talking about sex, drugs, and violence through the lenses of science and faith. That's a ticketed event, and seating is limited. And you'll probably, if you're in New York, you want to grab those tickets now before they sell out. Uh, I'll be at my own church, Good Samaritan, uh, United Methodist Church, in September as well. I'll also be hitting up uh, the Sandbox Cooperative, which is really cool. That's an online event that you can all be a part of. You can listen and stream online and even ask questions. Uh, Unless you happen to be in the uh, Rochester, Minnesota area, at which point you can attend in person. Of course, I'm very excited to tell you I'll be speaking at the Storyline Conference in Chicago this year. I'll also be uh, in Denver um, in October, late October, for the Wildfire Services at uh, St. Andrews UMC, as well as uh, a special event with uh, me sharing and Jennifer Knapp uh, doing some music. So lots of great stuff coming up. I think there's more events than that on the page. 2016 is starting to book up as well. I expect it to be a pretty busy year. The book will come out next year, and there'll be a book tour, but also lots of events. So if you've been thinking about having me come to your college or your uh, conference or your church or whatever faith community you're a part of, uh, I'd love to. Just go to AskScienceMike.com, click on Book Mike, because 2016 is already starting to fill up. And I'd like to see you before 2017. Of course, this show is powered by your questions, so keep them coming. Most people go to AskScienceMike.com. You can record a voice question, submit it right there. You can also type out a question. If you want an anonymous question, that's the place to do it. Just check the anonymous checkbox. I won't reveal your name or identity on the show. You can also use the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube, although pretty much nobody does that anymore. Most people just use the website. And AskScienceMike is listener-supported, so you can help us create and maintain these conversations that are open and honest and safe. And, um, you know, I've really been encouraged lately because so many people... (laughs) tell me that they disagree with some of the things I say, you know, theologically or, or, or about the mythology of Scripture, but they appreciate the fact that I don't pretend to know what I don't and that show so much allows tension, allows people to disagree. I hope our shared affinity here is a desire for open conversations and uh, de-shaming Christianity, not necessarily landing on any particular belief system. But the show is listener-supported. This is how I pay my bills. And so if you'd like to throw me a dollar a month, I'd really appreciate it. You can give at any level. Of course, you can uh, change or cancel pledges at any time. There's some perks for people who donate to the program, although all my wonderful patrons say they don't care about the perks. Uh, and of course, if money's tight, you can rate the show on iTunes. That's one of the best things you can do to help people discover the show. Or just tweet or post on Facebook about an episode you enjoyed. Of course, no matter what, Ask Science Mike will always be free to download. That's not going to change. Haley Hyde helps us do our production work. We're so thankful for her. Greg Nordine does our production and sound design. The show is totally not possible without Greg. 
And of course, my gigantic monster of a friend, Jeb Bodiford, does our theme song. He can compose music if you need it done. Uh, you can find links to all of those folks as well as resources for every single question ever answered in the history of the show on AskScienceMike.com. Now, one last thing before I go. Uh, this week, I was lucky enough to spend some time with Don Miller and Bob Goff at the Malibu Lodge that uh, Bob Goff has up in British Columbia. And uh, I met a couple of friends there. Their names are Jill and Kate. They're singer-songwriters. And I got to hear them play in a, a kind of a small, intimate setting. And they have a song that just really, really moved me. And I thought you guys may enjoy as well. So instead of closing out with my usual theme song, I thought you guys might like to hear this song, My Love, by Jill and Kate. I'll have a link to it on iTunes in the show notes, and I'll see you guys next week. Crazy about you since I found you So you can fall right to pieces on the floor tonight You can break down if you need to cry But I won't ever change my mind I won't ever change my mind about you So come on, take a walk with me Take my hand, you can scream into the darkness And tell me your plans, you can cry all night Till you understand my love Cause I'll be here in the morning when the sun is bright And when you see it there shining You will come to find that it's always gonna be here Till the end of time, my love Figure me out, you can love me later if you hate me now.